Okay, uh, welcome once again to another Throttle Up Radio show and podcast. And I'm your host, Captain Kevin Smith, and I'm here with my great audio engineer for another Throttle Up show podcast. What should I say? Oh, we are a radio show on Red State Talk Radio, right? And a weekend show, so um, on both Saturdays and Sundays. Both channels. What else? 6 p.m. and 7 p.m. My audio engineer is reminding me. <laughs> as if sometimes I get that messed up a little bit. Okay, and then, of course, we are a podcast on all podcast platforms that we are aware of. Uh, we do this thing every week, almost, at least. And we have, let's say, we are in the midst of a uh, special series uh it's called tip of the spear right that's our new series that we're starting yep okay it's tip of the spear new series and we're going to kick that off with what what else do i need to say uh we have a new book of course we've mentioned that a bunch of times uh we have a Oh, yeah, we're exactly right. I mean, we are on Substack. We have um, almost every week we po- we have a short article on Substack, by the way, and you can go to Substack and is it Substack.com? I think it is, isn't it? You know, and go there and you could type in Sonic Warrior and uh, that's, that's the uh, banner we're using for Substack is the Sonic Warrior, and that's the name of our new book, by the way, the Sonic Warrior Chronicles of a Tough Gun Pioneer, and go to Substack and read stuff, right? We post something almost every week, uh, short articles related to this whole thing that we're dealing with, uh, so every everything we we do is sort of like tied together, at least conceptually, uh, and uh, all settles, uh, uh, all occupies a space uh, around which we call uh, critical thinking. Okay, so here we go with today's opening question from our great audio engineer. Here she is. Okay, hello, uh, Kevin, and hello to your listening audience. When preparing for battle at the tip of the spear... And the reality is a conflict between the great powers. Can you tell our audience what this means? And explain how one prepares for such a conflict with the, within the airborne battle space. Okay, good question. Uh, great question, and this sort of like, it, it's pretty important, I would say, in terms of everything that we have done so far uh, over the long course of this uh, throttle, this uh, radio show and podcast. This might very well be at the top of the list. Maybe it's the most important show we're going to be doing. Uh, we're at least starting the most important series, and and this has a lot to do with uh, with national defense, we're gonna we're gonna address that in a in a uh, meaningful way, uh, with the understanding that our perspective, or we can say my perspective here, um, and both is is uh, operative. My perspective is a bit different, and and it it's. Uh, it's designed to be complementary to what? Well, complementary to the views of uh, some of the other thinkers, some of the other authors, speakers. Victor Davis Hansen is one great author and speaker and commentator. And there are others, and, and they're great people, and um, I enjoy listening and watching them and stuff like that. But the perspective that I come, uh, that I'm putting forward here or come from is a bit different. And my perspective is is a, a firsthand account, 
All right. So this is uh, my perspective starts at, in other words, what what does uh, what does operating at the tip of the spear actually mean from a person who has been there, from a person, or we could say better, from a first person perspective. All right. So I have been at the tip of the spear. Okay. And that gives me a certain perspective, certainly. And from that perspective, from that orientation, uh, if you recall, uh, John Boyd's OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, act, uh, we're looking at orientation from the orientation perspective that I bring to the table is a first-person account. In other words, and I wasn't observing at the tip of the spear. It's actually operating at the tip of the spear, right? So uh, from a first-person operator, if you will, and a uh, warrior, uh, to be a little bit more specific, a sonic warrior, uh, what was it like? What did we do? What should we do? How how can we then prepare to return to the uh, great power conflict challenge that we are facing right now? Now, what I'm going to point out here as we begin this show is that the discussions going on right now particularly within the Air Force, but also in the Navy and other services, the discuss- and, and, and by the way, the Marine Corps as well. The discussions going on right now is, is how can we prepare for a great power conflict? Or another way of saying that is how can we prepare for a conflict between great powers? In other words... The great power is a near-peer adversary committed to uh, mission success, committed to winning on the battlefield, and they are, uh, they are in the process of confronting this country. Uh, I'm not making this up. This is not fantasy. This is actually real. This is really happening. And what should we do? Now, others look at the tangibles when we uh, uh, at least attempt to address ourselves to this issue, to this challenge. Uh, Many look at the tangibles. This is not a criticism necessarily, okay, but they do, okay. That's sort of like the way we think, okay. We like to think about things, Ian McGilchrist <laughs> challenges that uh, mode of thinking, by the way, just uh, parenthetically. Just keep that in mind, his book, The Matter With Things. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind all the time, uh, especially listening to this show. Keep that in mind as we go forward. And I'm going to be looking at it from a different perspective. I'm going to be looking at it, in addition to the hardware, I'm going to be looking at it from the perspective of the uh, human intellect or the perspective of the human operator or the, or the human uh, warrior. What, what is the intellect that we're dealing with? Uh, uh, another term I use is cognitive system. Right? What's going on in the brain of the warrior? What should go on in the brain of the warrior? How, how does the warrior think? How should he think? He or she. Okay. Uh, and that's the, uh, that's the perspective that I take, which is the collaboration between human and machine. If we are gonna, going to succeed in battle, uh, we have to 
outthink the enemy if they're using a similar type of weapon system or a weapon system that is as lethal as the one that we are using on the battlefield. Okay, and that's the whole point of the great power conflict. The whole point is that we will be confronted with weapon systems that are at least as good as ours and perhaps better than ours. We are going to be faced with a clever enemy. I, I just got today somewhere I was reading uh, the fact that that there is some danger, actually, to our satellite systems. Uh, could our satellite systems, or at least some of them, be, uh, could they be damaged or taken down or destroyed? Uh, are there satellite-destroying systems? Are there groups of warriors that are that target satellites to immobilize satellites? Uh, if that's the case, uh, we have a new completely new battlefield okay uh, we do we have a new battlefield and if we close down the satellites and, and everything that the satellites are doing for us right now then we are left with airborne platforms that are more robust and more immune to enemy destruction we're also uh, back to a quasi-analog uh, uh, era. We go back in time. If we are losing, if we're losing data link uh, with our uh, weapon systems, then we're have we're going to have to revert back to something that we did during the analog era, or something uh, a facsimile of that, or similar to that. In other words, we have to be able to um, adjust. We have to be able to uh, uh, repurpose our forces. We have to uh, be able to innovate on uh, in real time on the battlefield. Okay. So, here's where I'm coming from in attempting to address myself to this opening question. The opening question was, uh, the reality is a conflict between great powers. What does this mean? It means that we have to be prepared for a formidable enemy. We have to be prepared for someone who can fight, knows how to fight, and it is a possible for this, uh, this adversary, it is entirely possible, feasible, and often likely that this adversary will win the conflict, will succeed in battle. It's possible. We have to be prepared for that. Okay. How does one prepare for such a conflict within the airborne battle space? Okay. There are four th uh, things that uh, present themselves uh, right away, four things in stark relief when we uh, take a look at or when we enter the airborne battle space. And these four things I'm going to give you are extremely important. The four things are velocity, all right, this is an airborne battle space. Okay, we're looking at fast-moving objects. We're looking at fast-moving weapon systems. Why? Because speed is is uh, is essential. Uh, in the Top Gun one movie, I have the need for speed. Okay, speed is essential. Velocity is key. One of the keys. The other one is energy. So we have velocity. We have energy, a little bit different. Stay with me because that will explain the difference. 
then we have agility, which also could be called maneuverability, but the common term right now is agility. Uh, uh, that's uh, I think it's a more popular term. Uh, lots of folks are using it. So we have agility, and then we have lethality as the fourth item. All right, so we have we have four items, okay? And with respect to that, we have on uh, that that uh, something that puts all of this stuff together, which is uh, a uh, a warfare cognitive system or a an intellect in other words a smart system an intellect what is that the warrior's intellect the warrior uh, needs to be able to put this thing together what is it well it's a mission system with these four operating parts and that's what it is now that that's not all there is but this is something that we can begin to understand if we look at this uh, this mission system from the perspective of okay what are the key functions what are the key characteristics of it what are the capabilities we're looking for what is it at the top level of this mission system that we need to understand it's velocity, energy, agility, and lethality. That's the four things. Now, with respect to that, we're looking at the ability of the warrior, if you will, the ability of the warrior to, uh, to integrate all these things together. Now let me give you an example of that, and we talked about this before, but it's it's I think it's uh, important for us to uh, keep this in mind, which is uh, uh, before we enter the airborne battle space, we are prepared for something. We are preparing ourselves. We are preparing our equipment. We are also uh, preparing ourselves mentally. Okay, to get in the game, we wanted this is a mental exercise as well. We want to mentally get into the game. And we do that by invoking the entry protocol. So before we actually enter the airborne battle space, we activate the entry protocol. And that's something that's done prior to, immediately prior to entering the airborne battle space. What is it? The entry protocol uh, 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 challenges us, if you will, or asks, asks us or insists that we uh, consider uh, the first thing is velocity. Okay. With respect to velocity, the entry protocol uh, encourages us to consider whether or not our Mach number is greater than the Mach number of the detected enemy that is also occupying the airborne battle space. Okay, the technical term for that this comes out of the um, aerial attack study and other studies, but primarily the aerial attack study authored by Colonel John Boyd. It's called Delta Mach. Okay, Delta Mach means uh, Delta is a mathematical term. You know, it's uh, it's kind of like what it's using calculus. Is that right? And other things. I think it is. I think it's a well. It's it's used in mathematics, right? Change of rate or change. All right. So delta means something is changing. It means the delta mark or the difference between the delta mark is the difference between your mock number and the enemy's mock number. Now, here's the thing: if you enter the airborne battle space, 
you must have, if you want to succeed, you must be set up for success. You have to set yourself up for success, and you must have a positive Delta Mach with respect to the enemy uh, air combat vehicle. You have to have a positive Delta Mach. Energy enters the picture as well, too. You not only have kinetic energy, which is velocity, okay? It's actually velocity squared if you want to get technical, mathematically technical about it. Nevertheless, it relates to velocity. But you need something beyond that. You need to have a positive energy uh, differential with respect to the enemy. Okay. All right, so you have velocity and energy. How do you achieve a positive energy differential with respect to the enemy? You achieve a greater altitude. You have a, a positive altitude differential. You are at a higher altitude than the enemy forces. So you, you have greater speed. You also have higher altitude. Altitude is critical, right? So not only is there a need for speed, but it's also you have to have higher ground. You have to be faster, and you have to be higher. If you are not faster or you are not higher, your chances of mission success are, are significantly reduced and almost zeroed out if you're dealing with uh, another great power, all right? So we are engaged in combat, with re uh, and we are calling this a great power conflict, okay? That means that these airplanes are at least as capable as our airplanes or the airplane that we are flying or the airplane that I'm flying. And what's the difference? What's the uh, what what's the force is there is there any force multiplier and the force multiplier exists within the cognitive system entirely I know this is sometimes this is hard to understand and I realize I'm getting a little bit controversial here but that's okay right that's my perspective and I'm not backing away from this uh, we have to have better trained pilots. That was the whole idea behind the start of Top Gun. I was there. I was at Miramar. I knew every everyone involved in that. And the whole idea behind Top Gun was that we had to produce better thinking pilots. We had... We want to return to the lost art of air combat, which, which is what we did, by the way. We returned. We, we, we then uh, achieved that art form, the art. It's really an art and science of aerial combat is really what it is. We have to have that as part of our... Uh, uh, combat arsenal. We have to have that skill set. The skill set we call close in aerial combat. We have to have that. And to the extent that we have it uh, in better quality and better quantity than the enemy, we are almost certainly going to win. But that's the key to mission success. The key is not in the hardware. The key is in the brain of the fighter pilot. Think like a fighter pilot. That's the, that's the, the key to mission success. How do we achieve that? And that's a good question, right? How do we achieve that? Uh, do we just go about business as usual? Or do we examine the whole aspect of of uh, selection and preparation in training and 
training exercises and proficiency and maintaining proficiency? How do we do that? And I, I don't know if we're spending even even remotely enough time on this subject. I'm not sure that we are spending enough time on the human side of this equation. But that's my point and my reason for being anyway is to uh, is to point out, emphasize, and 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 provide that which is necessary for us to deal with the human side of this uh, of this uh, challenge. Okay, if the challenge is a great power conflict, if that's our challenge. Uh, then we better be, we better rise to the occasion and we better be prepared for this challenge. Okay, so we're going to play a uh, clip right now. What is it called? It's called, okay, uh, this clip is from the Academy of Ideas. Uh, it is called Why Lying to Yourself. Um, there it is. Why lying to yourself is ruining your life. Okay, so the first order of business before we even enter into the airborne battle space, we can say that this is this is contained within the entry protocol. The entry protocol means that we have to clear out our mind space with unnecessary stuff. Okay, we have to clear the debris out of our mind space before we actually enter the airborne battle space. Now, I've mentioned this before, by the way, and I'm going to probably mention it again, but this is, this is critical. This is actually mission critical. We have to clear out our mind space. And we're going to do that by, by a certain amount of introspection. We're going to look at ourselves as a cognitive system. Are we oriented toward the truth? The first order of business is, is objective truth. That's the first order of business. Can we be objective? In all cases, can we be objective? Can we achieve uh, uh, objectivity? Uh, can we uh, always embrace that which is true, that which is real, that which is actual, uh, that which is uh, objective without bias? Can we embrace that? So the first order of business is to make sure that we are ready, our brains and our minds and our intellect and all of that stuff dealing with the, uh, the mental arena uh, is, uh, is optimized uh, for, uh, for this uh, upcoming engagement, right? So if, if we, cannot, uh, we cannot recognize what is actual, real, and true, that we are simply not going to succeed in battle. That's just the, the bottom line of this, all right? This is a very stark reality here, okay? Uh, it does not tolerate, when we enter the airborne battle space, there is no place and it will not tolerate those who cannot be objectively real and true, who cannot look at the world objectively, who cannot uh, uh, recognize what is true and what is not true, cannot clear out the rubble in their own brains to make sure that it is poised to be able to see what is actually going on in the real sense. All right, so here goes. Uh, we're going to play this clip. How long is it? It's about 14 minutes, all right? But it's, I think it's pretty important as we begin our discussion and we'll continue in other in uh, future shows as well. But 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 keep this in mind. Uh, we're looking at 
ourselves and we're we're looking at ourselves as a a system that needs to be oriented toward that which is true that which is real that which is objective and this once we do that then we can engage our situation awareness uh, mental processing or mental processor but we're not going to engage our situation awareness processor just yet we're going to make sure that when we do it will be effective in order for us to make sure that when we do that we are going to be effective or at least have a high probability that we will be effective we have to do what is being done right what is uh, what we're presenting right now from the academy of ideas which is uh, which is, if you are lying to yourself, stop it and, uh, and reorganize your, uh, your mental equipment, uh, your cognitive system. Reorganize it to that which is only driven by, interested in, and pays attention to that which is true. Okay, here goes. You must look at who you are and make an effort to know yourself, which is the most difficult knowledge one can imagine. When you know yourself, you will not puff up yourself like the frog who wanted to be the equal of the ox. From an early age, most of us are taught the value of honesty and we are swift to cast scorn on the liars who walk among us. Yet, in a striking paradox, many who claim to be honest in their interactions with others fall prey to the most insidious form of dishonesty, that of lying to oneself. In this video, we explore the phenomenon of self-deception and examine how it paves the way for broken relationships and a ruined life. Nothing is so difficult as not deceiving oneself, said the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Deception is a two-faced phenomenon. On the one hand, there is explicit lying, where we tell a lie to another person, but know that we are lying. On the other hand, there is self-deception, where we tell a lie, either to ourselves or to another, but we believe the lie we tell. It is easy to understand why people tell explicit lies, for even if immoral, an explicit lie can help us to evade responsibility avoid difficult confrontations, or gain the favor of another. But why do we lie to ourselves? We lie to ourselves because it is one of the most effective defense mechanisms against painful thoughts, emotions, and beliefs. Whether mental pain is triggered by a sense of personal inadequacy, feelings of inferiority, self-loathing, guilt, or shame, self-deception helps us escape these feelings. Self-deception also reduces the mental discomfort that accompanies cognitive dissonance. Or as Carol Tavares and Elliot Aronson write in, mistakes were made, but not by me. The engine that drives self-deception, the energy that produces the need to justify our actions and decisions, especially the wrong ones, is the unpleasant feeling called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is a state of tension that occurs when a person holds two cognitions, ideas, attitudes, beliefs, or opinions, that are psychologically inconsistent with each other. Such as, smoking is a dumb thing to do because it could kill me, and I smoke two packs a day. Dissonance produces mental discomfort that ranges from minor pangs to deep anguish. People don't rest easy until they find a way to reduce it. Cognitive dissonance is pervasive in the human experience. For example, it arises if we have harmed another, but believe ourselves to be good. It will be triggered if we are stuck in a dead-end job, yet believe we are smart and capable. Or it may emerge if we think we are a person of value, but are in a relationship with an abusive or disloyal partner. To reduce the cognitive dissonance triggered by situations like these, we can take healthy actions that address the root cause of our mental anguish. We can apologize for a wrong done to another, 
we can cultivate skills that make a new career possible, or we can end a toxic relationship. But taking these constructive steps often requires courage, discipline, and hard work. And so, the easy way out of resolving our dissonance with self-deception can prove tempting. We can tell ourselves that the other person deserved the wrong we did to them, that our dead-end job provides us with security, or that our relationship isn't toxic as we deserve our partner's anger. These self-deceptions allow us to escape the anguish of cognitive dissonance without making any real changes to our life. Everyone takes the easy way out at times, but if self-deception becomes chronic and the primary way we deal with mental pain, we begin down a path that can easily ruin our life. For each lie we tell ourselves to escape awareness of the existence of a problem is a step taken away from the path of self-development. Each time we deceive ourselves to diminish the uncomfortable feelings of cognitive dissonance, our problems and difficulties go unresolved and we set ourselves up for greater suffering down the line. Or as Tavris and Aronson explain, mindless self-deception, like quicksand, can draw us deeper into disaster. It blocks our ability to even see our errors, let alone correct them. It distorts reality, keeping us from getting all the information we need and assessing issues clearly. It prolongs and widens rifts between lovers, friends, and nations. It keeps us from letting go of unhealthy habits. The more the quicksand of self-deception pulls us down, the more we limit our potential. But self-deception is more than just self-limiting. It also impedes the cultivation and maintenance of healthy relationships, and in extreme cases can motivate us to commit acts of cruelty toward innocent victims. To understand how self-deception harms interpersonal relationships we need to recognize that one of the most common ways that we deceive ourselves is through the manipulation of our memories. We can be selective as to what we remember, and denying that something has happened is one of the most effective means to reduce cognitive dissonance. For example, if we have wronged someone and feel guilty about it, instead of apologizing and making amends, we can deny that the event ever happened. Or as Nietzsche put it, I have done it, says my memory. I cannot have done it, says my pride, and remains inexorable. Finally, the memory gives way. Manipulating our memories to deceive ourselves goes further than mere denial of a memory. Many people will go as far as to create false memories to diminish mental pain and to resolve cognitive dissonance. For example, if cognitive dissonance is triggered by the contradictory beliefs that a we are a smart and capable person, and b. our life is a mess, we have a few options to quell the mental anguish of our cognitive dissonance. We can take the steps to straighten out our life, or we can blame our current situation on events of the past, and even if our past wasn't bad enough to excuse our current problems, we can deceive ourselves with false memories to convince ourselves it was. With false memories, we can turn our past into a horror show of abuse, trauma, and cruel twists of fate that makes our current life situation not a disappointment, but an accomplishment, given what we tell ourselves we went through. Or as Tavris and Aronson explain in Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. Why would people claim to remember that they had suffered harrowing experiences if they hadn't? especially when that belief causes rifts with families or friends. By distorting their memories, these people can get what they want by revising what they had, and what they want is to turn their present bleak or merely mundane lives into dazzling victories over adversity. Memories of abuse also help them resolve the dissonance between I am a smart, capable person and my life sure is a mess right now, with an explanation that makes them feel better about themselves and removes responsibility. Another way self-deception harms relationships was identified by Fyodor Dostoevsky. In his book, Demons, one of the characters, Fetka the Convict, observes how the protagonist, Pyotr Stepanovich, invents a man and then lives with him. 
What he meant by this was that instead of looking at someone in a clear and objective manner and evaluating their character based on their behaviors and actions, sometimes we create or invent a fictitious characterization of another to justify how we treat them. In Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov, he gives an example of this form of self-justification in action. When one of the characters is asked why he hates someone so much, and he answers, I'll tell you, he has done me no harm, but I played him a dirty trick, and ever since I have hated him. Creating a fictitious characterization of another person to justify mistreating them sets us down a dangerous path. In Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me, Tavaris and Aronson provide an example of how this process can unfold. Take a boy who goes along with a group of his fellow 7th graders who are taunting and bullying a weaker kid who did them no harm. The boy likes being part of the gang, but his heart really isn't in the bullying. Later, he feels some dissonance about what he did. How can a decent kid like me, he wonders, have done such a cruel thing to a nice, innocent little kid like him? To reduce the dissonance, he will try to convince himself that the victim is neither nice nor innocent. He is such a nerd and a crybaby. Besides, he would have done the same to me if he had the chance. Once the boy starts down the path of blaming the victim, he becomes more likely to beat up on the victim with even greater ferocity the next chance he gets. This dynamic of a nice kid becoming a bully by convincing himself that the victim deserved it is the same dynamic that occurs at a collective level when normal people scapegoat an ethnic, religious, or political minority. The scapegoating process typically begins with minor transgressions being committed against the scapegoated group. Perhaps the group is banned from certain places or stripped of certain rights. An act of justification usually follows these initial transgressions, whereby the scapegoated group is demonized in the minds of the aggressors with words and accusations. For example, the scapegoats may be labeled as degenerate, disease-ridden, or a threat to society, or they will be accused of fictitious crimes. This demonization process paves the way for even worse acts of aggression to follow, and if this process, which the psychologist Irvin Staub called a continuum of destruction, is not halted, the end result can be horrifying, as evidenced in the totalitarian states of the 20th century. One psychological consequence of harm-doing is further devaluation of victims. People tend to assume that victims have earned their suffering by their actions or character, explained Irvin Staub. Given that self-deception limits our potential, ruins relationships, and can turn us into a man or woman capable of inflicting serious harm on innocent victims, if we wish to live a fulfilling life and to contribute to the uplifting of others, not to tearing them down, we should limit the degree to which we lie to ourselves. Sometimes, escape from the quicksand of self-deception occurs when we hit rock bottom and our illusions are shattered against our will. But this is a dangerous means of escape, as the attempt to rebuild a broken life is an arduous task. It is far better to voluntarily break our illusions through a ruthless attempt at self-honesty. For as Carl Jung noted, A visible enemy is always better than an invisible one. In this case, I can see no advantage whatever in behaving like an ostrich. It is certainly no ideal for people to live in a perpetual state of delusion about themselves, foisting everything they dislike onto their neighbors and plaguing them with their prejudices and projections. When we break the habit of self-deception, life unfolds with a newfound ease as we are no longer burdened by the convoluted web of falsehoods we once spun. Freed from the exhausting need to layer deceit upon deceit, we can devote more energy toward accomplishing meaningful goals. When we stop lying to ourselves about how we treat others, we cease sabotaging our relationships, and we avoid the perilous path of scapegoating. Ultimately, Abandoning self-deceit is an act of self-emancipation, as greater honesty frees us to heed the age-old wisdom to know thyself. To this day I have deceived others and myself, wrote Anton Chekhov. I have suffered for it, 
and my suffering was cheap and vulgar. I'm glad that I see my faults clearly, that I am conscious of them. This will help me to reform and become a different man. Okay, so uh, the, the first order of business is, uh, is uh, basically is ourselves, all right? So what, what is going on in our mind space? If we are at the tip of the spear, uh, the first order of business is for us to, to, to uh, do a house cleaning. The other, the other thing that we did, uh, we we spent a lot of time on this as well, which is uh, we did a lot of focus work. Uh, we were focused in on uh, a particular uh, mission, if you will. Uh, we were mission focused, uh, and we we had to uh, stop. Uh, all the distractions that were going on. Uh, a, a term that was used is compartmentalization. Uh, and, and that's, uh, we were using it in a positive sense. This was not uh, anything negative. It was, it was the way we were going to be able to succeed over the long term. But what it was is what we were uh, we were intensely focused on the mission, and in order to do that, uh, we had to make sure that uh, that we were uh, on the side of honesty. Okay, that we had embraced honesty, we had embraced the idea of telling the truth. Uh, we we embrace the idea of a high moral standard for ourselves, right? And and that was pretty critical. In order to do that, it took a, a fair amount of self uh, uh, reflection, if you will. Uh, we uh, uh, we had to look at ourselves, had to look at ourselves objectively. Now that's a hard thing to do, but it was essential. Look at ourselves objectively and. Uh, and and recognize that we are going to do the best that we can do. We are not going to be perfect. Uh, nobody is perfect. We're not going to be uh, openly critical of our uh, colleagues, uh, openly critical of others. Uh, we're going to pay pay attention to what we can do and recognize that and 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 work to achieve uh, the performance, the proficiency and performance that uh, that represents the best that we can do, recognizing that uh, it's not going to be possible as humans for us to be perfect. We're not going to be perfect. Uh, nobody is, by the way. Okay, so... That's the whole idea behind it, behind what we're trying to do. Uh, this is the early part of the entry pro protocol, which is uh, looking at ourselves objectively and looking at the way we process information. Now, if we're looking at this as a cognitive processor, we're looking at this as the ability to process information realistically and truthfully and objectively. Okay, how do we do that? First and foremost, we have to embrace honesty. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be honest with other, others. We have to be committed to what Jordan Peterson talks about in his 12 Rules of Life, which is, uh, which is tell the truth. Okay, that's that uh, orientation toward the truth is probably the most important thing we can do to prepare ourselves or we can I, I can put it this way as we are um, going through and activating the entry protocol as we begin to enter the airborne battle space we we have to make sure that we are 
and our wingmen, by the way, are, or our fellow warriors are oriented toward the truth. Okay, that's that's the key. In addition to that, we do not um, uh, jettison our moral code. We don't do that. Okay, we are warriors who subscribe to some kind of a value system. We're not barbarians. We do have a moral code. And so uh, we're not going to uh, shoot somebody when they are in a parachute. We're not going to do that. It's just something that it's not, it's just not part of the way we do things. Okay, so... uh, Make sure that our mind space is cleared out, cleaned up, and we are prepared. We are prepared to enter the airborne battle space uh, because, first and foremost, we are on the side of the truth. We do not lie to ourselves, and we do not lie to others. And that's the way we're going to succeed, okay? This is a very difficult area to be in. Uh, If we are not truthful, we will not succeed in battle because battle requires us to look at things objectively and truthfully and realistically. Okay, how much time do I have? I think I'm getting toward the end. I'm asking my great audio engineer and she says that we have less than a minute to go so i i need to wrap <laughs> i need to wrap this thing up i have probably repeated myself more than once uh but i think it's an important subject uh and uh it's okay for me to repeat myself because this is really cr- critical and it applies to everyone across the board that's engaged in some kind of a purposeful, meaningful activity. But most importantly, if you are at the tip of the spear, uh, this is crucial for mission success, uh, uh, particularly if we're dealing with a near-peer adversary. Okay, so that completes another Throttle Up Radio Show and podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will see you all next week.